The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. Hitler was a German politician, leader of the Nazi party, dictator in Germany from 1933 to 1945, initiator of World War II, perpetrator of the Holocaust, and widely considered one of the most evil leaders in all of history. Welcome to Personology. I'm Dr. Gail Saltz, and my guest today is Dr. Benjamin Carter Heck, author of The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic, and professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City of New York. One of the most tyrannical monsters of the last century, Adolf Hitler, was born in 1889 to Alois and Clara Hitler. His father, Alois, was much older than his mother, and it was his third marriage. Alois was an extremely severe man, but intelligent and ambitious, having been born into a lower social class and then raising himself up to the middle class. Alois was a very authoritarian, tyrannical father. That was not in any way unusual in late 19th century Austria or Germany or many other places. There does seem to have been a difference of degree, though. Alois had a drinking problem. He was often very violent, very brutal, both towards Hitler's mother, Clara, and towards Hitler himself and occasionally his siblings. So we know that he was raised in this environment where he's dealing with this very, very difficult father, and their relationship was never good. I think a key element here is to understand that parents did hit their children, but Alois really beat his son. And Paula, the younger sister, reports some severe beatings where he was almost left for dead. Let's talk about his relationship with his mother, because, of course, we all know as psychoanalysts that the relationship with mom is hugely important. So he loved his father and he hated his father and he had difficulty getting along with him. But he loved his mother. And his mother, who was younger, was a very attentive mother in the sense that children that were born to the marriage before Adolf died in infancy or really even at birth. And so he was the first surviving child. In that sense, she had a a kind of miserable life with this alcoholic, authoritative husband and also the loss of multiple children before Adolf. But she did focus a lot of attention on him. So she's reported as loving, but he didn't really get enough not enough love because she didn't protect him against the father. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. He wrote in Mein Kampf, his infamous partial autobiography, that he had respected his father and loved his mother. There's no doubt about his really close bonds of affection to his mother. Other people who knew him when he was young testified to this. It is widely believed by scholars of Hitler that if he ever loved, really loved one human being, it was his mother. He was always very indirect in the way that he wrote about his childhood. He never wrote or spoke really directly, harshly about his father, but there is a fascinating kind of indirect reference in Mein Kampf where he describes a working-class family in Vienna where the father drinks and beats the children and a son turns to juvenile delinquency. And most scholars of Hitler think this is actually a rather indirect reflection of personal experience, which gives us a bit of a sketch of what the reality was like in the Hitler household. And as a young boy, he went to elementary school in the town. By all reports, he was actually a great student, a very accomplished elementary school student. And so people thought, or at least his family thought that he was intelligent and his father had aspirations for him. His father, of course, had socially risen quite a long way from a poor peasant background up to being a customs official in the Austro-Hungarian government. By the standards of that time and place, that was a highly prestigious job. To be in state service in Central Europe in those days was to have really the most honored kind of job that there was. So that was a big deal that he got there. And of course, as typically happens in these kinds of family patterns, he wants his son to carry on the rise. So he has aspirations for his son to get a good education and to rise higher in the civil service. Now, this was something that Adolf Hitler was absolutely the farthest thing possible from anything he wanted to do. He had this vision of himself as a kind of great romantic bohemian artist in a kind of Nietzschean mold, which was a very common way for young people to think about how their sort of romantic future might expand in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. So that was another kind of arena of father-son conflict. And the conflict became more pronounced as he moved into what we call middle school and high school, where he started performing very poorly in pretty much every subject. When they look at the rankings of the subjects, he either he either did barely scraping by or he failed. He had to repeat grades. And about the only thing that he performed, quote, well in was essentially physical education and art. And history, actually. He was always very interested in history. But yes, as he got older, he became a much more indifferent student. This, too, I think, reflects his kind of growing sense of himself as somebody a bit apart, somebody who's not going to advance through the kind of conventional channels with the conventional education and the conventional aspiration that his father wants him to have. His father decides to, quote, retire, and he spends much of his day in the pub because he's not actually very happy being retired. And so it is presumed that he had really an alcohol problem. And then he would come home and be angry and particularly angry at his son who was doing poorly. And yet Adolf maintained this line. He sort of didn't dig in, hard to know whether he was lazy, couldn't do, didn't want to do. This was his form of protestation and, you know, resistance toward his father. But he really didn't do much except draw, essentially. And he started to have these aspirations of being an art student and being an artist, which made his father very unhappy. Also at the same time, right, he's entering puberty. And this is a time when most boys of that age are becoming sexually interested, meeting girls, dating girls, and as they age, perhaps even, you know, sleeping with girls, sleeping with prostitutes. And Hitler took the really opposite stance. He was seemed incredibly inhibited. He admired girls or a girl from afar. Actually, there was a, a young woman, Stephanie, who his friend reports he had a crush on for three years, never spoke to her, became immensely jealous of anyone who did speak to her, but never spoke to her, and maintained this sort of puritanical stance, right, that one should not sexually partake. Yes, he seems to have been terrified of venereal disease. And as you mentioned, it was quite common for young men in that era to get their first sexual experience by going to a brothel. He absolutely wouldn't do that because of his terror of syphilis or something similar. And yes, he had a fixation on this young woman in his hometown named Stephanie, but never seems to have approached her. He does seem to have been very, very worried about his own physicality, his own body, even later on far into his adult life. He would never go to the beach or go swimming because he didn't want to be seen in swim trunks. He never wanted to be seen in anything but either full formal dress or a uniform. He was very conscious about sort of preserving a certain amount of dignity, and he didn't want his body showing at all. He didn't want to be seen playing any kind of sports where he might flub something. He was really sort of physically closed down in all kinds of ways. When we try to understand what what is that about, syphilis was 
a big problem in that era and people suffered and people died of syphilis. He had an idea that his father might have had syphilis. And he also had an idea, even though this is very strange because it was understood at the time that syphilis was a contagious disease and not a hereditary disease. But nonetheless, he had the idea syphilis may be hereditary and in fact has concerns that perhaps he got this from his father, even though there was no evidence that he ever had syphilis not clear evidence that his father ever had syphilis, but he is very concerned about this idea of being infected, of being degenerate. This is important because later we'll talk about the path that he took in terms of needing to cleanse the world, as it were, that he has great concerns about degeneracy. And one of those is about syphilis or sexually transmitted disease, which seems to roll over to sex in general, and that he maintained this very inhibited way of behaving, particularly with women, which really lasts his entire life. We have no evidence whether he ever actually consummated via sexual intercourse any relationship actually with a woman, though he had some romantic interactions with women, but we're not clear how much beyond that it actually went. Yeah, all of the reports that we have about his sex life pretty much naturally are sort of hearsay or speculation and in many cases come from people who are inherently rather unreliable. I think it is generally believed that later on when he was in power and his mistress was the woman Eva Braun, who he always kept secret from the German people at large, but I think it is generally believed they had a more or less normal sex life. But Hitler definitely had a certain fixation about purity of blood, and some of it, as you said, has to do with the possibility of his father having had syphilis. But the other big part of it is that he was terribly afraid that he himself might have some Jewish ancestry. And this is an interesting story because it has been pretty effectively debunked, actually, by modern historical research. The issue here is that his father, Alois, was born out of wedlock, and we don't know who his father was exactly. It was speculated for a long time that Hitler's grandmother might have been a domestic servant in the home of a Jewish family and might have had relations with perhaps an elder son or the father of that family, and that might have been Adolf's grandfather. That has been pretty effectively debunked as really not even possible. However, the really important thing for sort of historical evolution is that it seems that Hitler really believed it, or at least was very afraid that that was actually true. And there's a couple of interesting consequences that flow from this. Later on, when he was in power, when the Germans got control of Austria in 1938, Hitler turned over the village where his grandmother had lived to the German army to serve as an artillery range. All the people who lived there were evacuated, and the German army obliterated the town by practicing artillery fire, including the cemetery where his grandmother was buried, which, you know, to put it mildly speaks of no very great reverence for his grandmother's grave. The other thing that's a little striking is that in 1935, as part of the famous Nuremberg Laws, which notoriously stripped German Jews of full citizenship and made sexual relations between Jews and non-Jews a criminal offense, forbid marriage between Jews and non-Jews, one other little thing that those laws did was prohibit a non-Jewish woman from working as a domestic servant in a Jewish household until a woman had reached the age of 45. So the fact that that gets inserted into this law speaks again probably, at least inferentially, to this fear that Hitler had that that's actually where his father had come from. So we can start to look at these threads, which really started very early on of his own feelings about potentially being infected in some way or degenerate in some way. And of course, the thoughts about being Jewish, even at that time in the culture, there was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. Yeah, European anti-Semitism is, of course, a huge and complex theme. One of the ironies of history is that in Germany before the First World War, in any way that we can sort of measure this, anti-Semitism was probably less prevalent than in some other countries, notably the Russian Empire, also possibly even France. In Austria, it probably was more prevalent, and Hitler certainly picked up some of that, some of the increasingly virulent anti-Semitism of pre-World War I Vienna. So that's definitely something that was in the air. However, the other intriguing thing is that from all evidence that we have of Hitler prior to the end of World War I, so in the first 30 years, more or less, of his life, there is no evidence of his having made anti-Semitic statements or having anti-Semitic views. If anything, quite the contrary. He had Jewish friends and associates in his younger days. He had a lot of respect for Jewish culture, Jewish artists, and which he expressed. And so there's, not only is there no evidence of any real anti-Semitism on his part, 
there's even a little evidence, rather, to the contrary. Now, he spun that story himself differently later. In his autobiography, Mein Kampf, he described a process whereby he became anti-Semitic living in Vienna in 1907 and 1908. That is considered by scholars to be a ex post facto construction. There's really no evidence of that at the time. So important other formation issues in his young life. So he's already actually starting to express some difficulty and conflict around aggression. He, unlike many people that we later think, oh, this person actually was a sociopath from the get-go, he doesn't do things like kill animals or pluck the wings off insects, etc. But he does have tremendous temper tantrums, tantrums that last through his adolescence, which is unusual. And so he struggles with that emotional control and these emotional outbursts. And we also see the beginnings of paranoia. So he already sort of frames his world often as who is against me. I believe that people are against me. And in fact, his father was one of the primary people. But other people in his mind become, let's say, against him. And then he has essentially these two major losses. So his parents not only die young, but die when he is young. So his father first dies when he's 14 of what we presume is probably complications of alcoholism, essentially. And then shortly thereafter, a couple of years later, his mother develops breast cancer and she dies, which he really describes as the greatest loss maybe of his whole life later, even in retrospect, that he is completely mournful and distressed about this. But there's an important element, too, in who took care of his mother. Yeah, the doctor who treated his mother was a local Linz doctor named Dr. Bloch, and Dr. Bloch was Jewish. And this actually is another interesting little strand in you know the evidence that we have of the development of Hitler's anti-Semitism, because he was very, very respectful to Dr. Bloch and very grateful for the treatment that Dr. Bloch had given his mother. Bloch said later he had never seen a young man who loved his mother so much and was so devoted to her. Hitler took really good care of his mother when she was sick. He was at her bedside all the time. He was a good son in that regard. And the relationship with Dr. Bloch was an interesting one because he retained a kind of gratitude and reverence for the doctor for decades after, to the point that in 1938, when, again, Hitler had gotten control of Austria, he made a point of sending a squad of soldiers to Dr. Bloch's house to protect him, to keep him safe from other Nazi marauders who were, of course, inflicting terrible violence on Jews at that moment. He made sure Dr. Bloch was kept safe, and he went so far as to facilitate Dr. Bloch's immigration to the United States at a time when it was getting very, very difficult for Jewish people to leave Central Europe. And Dr. Bloch made it to the United States and survived Hitler, probably the only Jewish person whom Hitler would dream of helping in that way. And so that was a rather odd relationship, but an odd insight into the way his anti-Semitism developed. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules 
meals a day. Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. After the death of his mother, he essentially leads kind of a wandering, failed life. He fails on two occasions to get into art school, which is actually quite devastating. He lives in hostels and men's homes. He financially can barely or not make it. He literally paints postcards to try to sell, to make money, to eat. We would kind of today define him essentially as a loser up until about the age of 30, that he really is completely unaccomplished. And it is really when World War I breaks out that he develops a role for himself. The outbreak of World War I clearly is the kind of providential turning point in his life, which he himself said. He had failed twice to get admitted to the Vienna Academy of Arts. The take that the professors there had on his artwork was that it was rather skillful in terms of its draftsmanship, but it was sterile. And if you see his paintings, it's true. It has been pointed out that he could paint or draw buildings really quite well, but not people, which is maybe a bit revealing. So he drifted for a few years. He lived in Vienna, painting postcards mainly for tourists for a few years. He moved to Munich, Germany in 1913, effectively as a draft dodger, because he did not want to serve in the army of the Austro-Hungarian Empire because he strongly disapproved of the ethnic and racial diversity of that empire. He wanted to be in a German country. So he fled to Germany, and he was living the same kind of life in Munich in 1913. And then, of course, in August 1914, there comes the war. There's a famous photograph that shows Hitler with an ecstatic look of joy on his face in a crowd of people in Munich's Odeonsplatz as war is being declared. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. He said in Mein Kampf, I fell down on my knees and gave thanks that I could be alive in this hour. And he volunteered right away for the Bavarian army, which was administratively separate from the main German army, and went through a very quick training and was at the front already in the fall of 1914. At the front, he manages to do something that actually is quite a feat, and that's not get killed. History might have been very different in a good way had he been killed, but he manages to be one of the few that does not get shot. And to some degree, that may have been partially of his own doing in that he manages to get assignments that have more to do with curring information back and forth. But he occasionally does have some very dangerous and risky maneuvering to do. And he does seem to pride himself on having been very brave and not being afraid to do whatever he was asked to do. But ultimately, he has a mustard gas injury. And this causes him nothing permanent, a conjunctivitis, uh, what we call blepharitis, but, you know, painful. He's sent to the hospital. He's treated. He gets better. But then something fascinating happens. While he's in the hospital, Germany surrenders. And Hitler has a really devastating reaction to this. This is the other and possibly the most important turning point in his life, because although he liked being in the army, his wartime record is strange. On paper, on one level, it looks quite good. He was awarded the Iron Cross first as well as second class. An Iron Cross first class was as high an award as someone at his rank could earn. So that speaks to a certain courage. However, it has been pointed out by the historian Thomas Weber, who's written really effectively about this, that because of the job he had as a regimental courier, not as a rifleman in the frontline trench, officers tended to give awards to soldiers they knew, and they knew the regimental couriers because they're at the base with the officers, not like the men who are in the frontline trench. So that partially explains Hitler's decoration. The other thing is, 
He never got promoted beyond the rank of the equivalent in U.S. terms would be private first class, Gefreiter in German. And this is really strange. I mean, the two things that are really strange about his wartime service, as you said, is that he didn't get killed. He was at the front basically for the entire war and didn't get killed, which is a statistical fluke of the highest order given World War I casualties. But also, in any army in World War I, anyone who was serving at the front in 1914, by 1918, was either dead or an officer, because the promotion, especially with the casualties, was quite rapid. And so the fact that Hitler ended up only as a private first class is very strange. Much later, testifying after World War II, one of his officers said, this is one of my favorite Hitler facts, we didn't promote him because we thought he lacked the leadership qualities to be a sergeant. This is a remarkable reflection on Hitler. So in a certain sense, he's maintaining that kind of loser pattern that he had before the war. That's what changes with the armistice and with the German surrender of the fall of 1918. This hits him like a proverbial ton of bricks. And this is one of the things he says in Mein Kampf, which I think we can probably believe, uh, when he describes the anguish that he had when he learned of the armistice. And he actually wrote there that he had not wept since the death of his mother in 1907, but now he wept again. So he's drawing a parallel probably between these two most painful moments of his life, and the defeat of Germany hits him in the same way that his mother's death had done. And not only did he weep, but psychologically what's fascinating is that after his eye situation was completely healed, upon hearing this news and having this emotional reaction, he says that he's blind again. And he has several days of, quote, blindness, which, of course, have no medical explanation and are believed to be what is called in psychiatry a conversion reaction. Basically, this is psychological blindness, which is a symptom experienced because of being so emotionally overwhelmed. And the nature of this emotional overwhelming is important. It's not just that he's sad and upset. It is that he is completely humiliated, that he feels totally shamed by the surrender of Germany and in a way that is overwhelmingly intolerable. So the physical manifestation of this is this conversion blindness, which after a few days resolved, but how does he psychically grapple with feeling this humiliation and shame, which is intolerable? Absolutely intolerable pain that he feels on the signing of the armistice means, I think, if I can camp on your territory for a moment, I think it's psychologically unsustainable that that could somehow be the fault of himself or Germany writ large. It has to be transferred somewhere else. We call that projection. So he projects out those horrible feelings that he can't own he projects it onto Jews and socialists, which for Hitler are probably one category, really. This is something else that he says in Mein Kampf, which probably does come with some sincerity. He writes of this feeling he had at the signing of the armistice. He found it intolerable that a gang of criminals could have taken control of the fatherland. And that's what he makes of the regime change that happens at that time when the emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm, abdicates and flees to Holland and is replaced by a left-of-center social democratic government in Germany becomes a democracy. And for Hitler, that's criminals getting a hold of the fatherland and betraying the fatherland. He's someone who just intuitively believes what later is called the stab-in-the-back idea, that the German army had not been defeated. It was betrayed by these quote-unquote criminals that he thinks have seized power in Berlin and signed the armistice. And this is a further evidence of these paranoid thoughts that he has, because basically what he's saying is it's the enemy within. It's not circumstance. It's not someone was more powerful. We have been attacked from inside, which is almost a paranoid delusion if you think about it, because, of course, there's no evidence that that was the case at all. The plain unromantic fact is that, as it would in World War II, Germany was overwhelmed by a coalition that was just economically, in terms of resources, in terms of manpower, just too strong. And Germany ultimately cracked under the pressure of that strong coalition. But that's exactly what Hitler can't take on board. It has to come from betrayal. Following this period, he essentially has nowhere to return. Unlike some soldiers who had built some sort of life, had gone to school, had a degree, he had nothing. And he didn't want to return to that life. So he was basically a person in search of a role, an identity. And this is what essentially led him to a political life. Yeah, the army had become, in a sense, his home. And he had no life of any kind to return to. So he desperately wants to stay in the army. But of course, following the armistice, the army is largely being demobilized and scaled down. So it's a real trick for him to figure out a way he can stay in the army, which he desperately wants to do. What he ultimately finds is that he has really one skill, which is speaking. An alert officer 
puts him in charge of a political education program that the army is running for soldiers, really in an effort to insulate the army against spreading socialism or communism in that era. They want soldiers to be educated in kind of conservative nationalism. And so they send Hitler out to give lectures to soldiers. And as he writes in Mein Kampf, again, I think we can take this as more or less valid, as he wrote, I found that I could speak, you know, with a capital S he puts it, he could speak. He turned out to be a gifted speaker, and his officers are alert to this, and they realize this is a guy with a speaking talent. Then they start using him as sort of a political spy. There are many fringe political groups of all kinds springing up in Munich at that time. Munich is where Hitler is at this moment. And so his officers start sending him out just to sort of witness and take notes on political meetings being held by these fringe groups. Later in 1919, he goes to a meeting being put on by a small fringe group called the German Workers' Party, or DAP. And he's supposed to just sit and listen. But what happens is a speaker at this meeting gives a speech arguing in favor of Bavarian independence, of Bavaria breaking away from Germany. Bavaria is kind of German Texas. It always has its own sort of ideas of its own sovereignty. It did then, it still does. So this, which Hitler views as treason, this argument for Bavarian sovereignty, provokes Hitler into one of those temper tantrums. And he rises in absolute rage. And, you know, probably many people have seen sort of film clips or even the movie Downfall, which illustrates Hitler's temper. It could be formidable. This is what happens now. He pours out this stream of Hitlerian rage and invective over this man who had given this speech, and the leaders of the DAP are sitting around watching this. And the one who was the founder of it, Anton Drexler, watches Hitler with awe, and then he says to a friend, more or less, that guy's got a mouth on him. We could use him. And in fact, that's what happens. Hitler gets drawn into this circle of the DAP. He gradually becomes their more effective speaker. After about six months of this, early in 1920, they reformulate the party with Hitler as now sort of de facto leader, and they give the party a new name. Instead of DAP, they changed it to NSDAP. The NS part is National Socialist. And so now the Nazi party, as we call it, is in existence. At this juncture in his life, he still has these uncontrollable, aggressive feelings. He's now realized that he can utilize them and even manufacture them, and they work for him. He continues to have these paranoid thoughts, and this sort of drives him further toward needing to be the one in power, be the one in control. And he has, at this point, a very good dollop of narcissism. I mean, this is about him, and he personally wants to gain control. And this leads him essentially to a premature attempt to take over. Yes. After a few years of building up the NSDAP, of speaking mostly in beer halls in Munich, he's made a bit of a name for himself regionally, not yet nationally. He decides in 1923 that what he and his movement need to do is emulate Benito Mussolini in Italy, who the year before had staged, actually mostly faked, but it was believed to be legit, the idea of a march on Rome. Mussolini put out this idea that his fascist, basically stormtroopers, had marched on Rome and seized power and then created the first fascist dictatorship. Hitler wants to do the same thing. He wants to march on Berlin, starting in Munich. Bit of an odd idea, given how far away it is. Nonetheless, this is the idea. He'll launch a coup d'etat from a Munich beer hall and seize power in Germany. This goes very badly, more or less from the start, because the sort of mainstream conservatives that he thinks are working with him peel away from him as soon as they can. The army and the police stay more or less and somewhat grudgingly loyal to the existing democratic state. And so they intervene and they crush his revolt in a shooting match, which leaves 23 Nazis dead. Hitler himself kind of scuttles away and is arrested the next day. That's the end of his coup. He's put on trial for treason. But the courts in Germany in that era tended to be staffed by judges who were highly conservative, highly nationalist. And the court turns out to be very sympathetic to this young ex-soldier who's only driven by his patriotism for Germany. In the courtroom, when Hitler and a number of others who were with him were on trial for treason, Hitler breaks into another of his nationalist tirades. And instead of condemning him, the judges listen with the same sort of awed respect that Anton Drexler had earlier. The presiding judge is heard to say, what a splendid chap, this Hitler. So you can imagine that that court is not going to go very hard on this young ex-soldier. He is convicted, but he's given an extremely light sentence of five years, everybody knowing he'll be out on parole much, much sooner than that. And very importantly, Hitler was not yet a German citizen. He was still an Austrian citizen, despite his war service. And the law was very clear that following conviction for treason, a non-citizen must be deported. So Hitler should have been deported after this, back to Austria. 
But the court expressly refused to do that. Citing his war service and his evident patriotism, the court ruled that it would be wrong to deport such a glowing German patriot back to Austria. And so they did not deport him, a clear violation of the law. But that's the thing which allowed Hitler to go on to have a political career. He gets out of jail, only serving after six months of his sentence. He gets out in December uh, 1924, and he's, the way is clear for him to revive the Nazi party and to go on his way politically. So psychologically, there's almost a feedback loop going on here where the culture and the psyche of the culture, essentially, is promoting Hitler because there is anti-Semitism and there is a wish for nationalism and there is an anger about the Treaty of Versailles, limitations, the need for reparations, the fact that employment is dropping and that people are starting to starve. And there is tremendous anger and resentment. And he is a great mouthpiece for this. So he is spurred on by the culture, psychologically speaking, and the culture is spurred on by him. He, by being able to articulate angrily the same feelings that many people are having, they rise him up, but he is also incredibly seductive to them. Yes, they want someone who will say the things that they are feeling in a temper tantrum form um, and express the anger that they cannot. Yes, that that's right. Although there are a couple of interesting factors here. One is time and one is basically region and demographics. On the whole, the whole period from 1918, from the end of the war till Hitler coming to power in 1933 is a time of crisis on many levels in Germany, which I think it's important to remember just the scale of crisis. There's the war dead. Germany lost 1.7 million in the First World War, followed by revolution, regime change. The new regime is not universally popular. There's ongoing civil war for several years, the famous hyperinflation, so currency becomes completely worthless. That all lasts up until about 1923, up until Hitler's coup attempt. But then things turn a little bit. And for a few years, the economy starts to get better, and as the economy gets better, the democratic system somewhat consolidates. And Hitler struggles a bit in this environment because he really only has one mode as a politician. As you said, he can channel rage at conditions which many Germans feel to be profoundly unjust. He can channel rage, but he can't navigate a political environment where there isn't crisis. So it's not altogether a coincidence that it's when crisis returns to Germany after this brief four- or five-year interval, when the Great Depression hits in 1929, the German economy, again, goes into freefall. By 1932, unemployment is at 40%. Since welfare payments were very limited for people who were unemployed, this basically meant that families whose breadwinner was unemployed were kind of slowly starving to death. There was a kind of creeping famine. Uh, and so the, the crisis is back. And in this atmosphere, Hitler can channel the rage that many people feel. With the other important qualification of region and demographics. So it's even then, even in 1932, when Hitler's starting to get significant electoral support, it's not everybody's rage he's channeling. There are constituencies within Germany that even then he doesn't appeal to. Working class, urban people generally stay with their traditional parties, which basically means the left of center social democrats, and to some extent, especially people who are unemployed, the more radical communists. Catholic Germans, which is about one-third of the population, basically stay with the one political party that is expressly for Catholics. So Hitler makes relatively few inroads into those groups. The rage that he's really channeling is the rage of people who are religiously Protestant and generally rural. That's where the Nazis really have their strengths. In northern and eastern Germany, largely rural regions, largely Protestant, by the early 1930s, the Nazis in some areas are getting 60, 70, 80 percent of the vote. That's their bastion. They never do very well in Berlin. They never do very well in Hamburg. These kind of relatively cosmopolitan big cities are not Nazi territory. It's really a kind of blue state, red state thing. And, and that maps rather closely onto the Germany of the early 30s. Let's talk for a minute about his grandiosity, which is initially perhaps a function of some narcissism, which is really an insecurity, right? That he wasn't doing anything and he needs to be super special, the most important, the best to counter those fears. But as he moves along and takes on the title of Fuhrer, the leader, he starts to evolve this concept of himself, which he projects to everyone, that he really essentially is the chosen one, that he is a demagogue of sorts. And he does things from a PR perspective to maintain this image, which is something that wasn't done at the time, but flying on a plane from place to place, only being seen in these speaking modes, otherwise his private life not being seen at all. Part of that actually was to uh, not marry. He said he, did, he would never take a wife anyway um, because he had to be married to Germany. 
It was important to him. He was aware that women, you know, would write him letters, love letters of please be with me, et cetera, that he had a seductive ability. And he wanted to keep that role, that he should be available and people should love him. And he couldn't therefore belong to anybody else. But more than that, he started to, let's say, drink his own Kool-Aid. He was very, very conscious of his image and the importance of his image as the leader. And he was very careful and very clever at maintaining this image of the leader a bit apart, a bit aloof. He never wanted it known that he had any relations with women. For most of the time he was in power, he had an unofficial mistress, Ava Brown, but he kept her very secret because he said he was married to Germany. The other thing, especially up till 33 when he had to win elections. He understood that he had what we would today call a kind of Kissinger effect on German women. Personally, I find this very hard to grasp, but we know that it happened. He said to one of his associates once, if Germans knew that I had, you know, a woman, a wife, a mistress, whatever, I would lose all my women's supporters and and we need the, the women voters. Now, that may have also partially been an excuse for his great inhibition because he did often choose to be infatuated with women who were unavailable, right? The wives of colleagues of his and, you know, but I can't have you because you are already taken. And the other women that we know that he had some interactions with, one was his niece, something that could never get out um, because it would look terrible for him. But in fact, he did keep her in an apartment, didn't want her to see other men. Something clearly went on there. And she, like Several other women that he became involved in ultimately killed herself, clearly having something to do with whatever went on with him. And he continued on this sort of buildup of feeling that he was godlike, which emboldened him as he moved through World War II to lay out all kinds of plans, including the Holocaust, which is something that perhaps the people around him would not have necessarily supported. But he was, you know, I lay down the law. Most people who have studied Hitler very closely see a sort of progression in his ego and sense of mission. It seems that early on in the 20s and probably into the 30s, he saw himself as what they called in those days the drummer, meaning basically a salesman, that he was someone who was going to mobilize Germans for the tasks that he thought they had to do, which basically was conquering a huge empire in Eastern Europe so that the country could expand and have a big enough food supply and be strong enough to compete globally with other great powers. He saw himself as sort of mobilizing Germans for that and creating the state that could facilitate that project. But it seems he did not see himself initially as the leader who would be called upon to actually carry that out. And at some point, his thinking on that seems to have changed. He clearly does get to a point where he thinks, no, I'm going to be the one who's going to have to launch this war that he thought Germany needed to conquer a huge empire. And there were a couple of factors here, one of them being that he recognized that he probably was the only leader, at least in sight at that time, who would have the combination of, as he saw it, vision, and as we might see it, recklessness and evil, for want of a better word, to carry out this mission. He recognized that his associates would never do that, and he was almost certainly right about that. The other thing was his fear of his own mortality. As you mentioned, both of his parents had died young. He was therefore convinced that he would too, and he felt he had very limited time. And as he approached his 50th birthday in 1939, he felt, time's running out. Also, he was aware by 1937, 1938, that some of the democratic powers, notably Britain, were starting to rearm in recognition of the threat that he posed, and that would close the window eventually. So as the 30s go on, you can really see it quite clearly, 36, 37, 38, he's in more and more of a hurry, and he's pushing the people around him towards war. Many of the people around him, particularly his military officers, his diplomatic people, his intelligence people, there's a kind of adults in the room thing going on here because really none of them wanted the war that Hitler was driving them to, not because they were great humanitarians or Democrats or anything. They were pragmatic people who didn't want to be driven into a war that they were convinced they would lose. There's a kind of string of attempts of these people to try and tie Hitler down and keep him from doing the crazy things that he's doing. But Hitler, with his ruthlessness and skill, one by one gets rid of them all, as he had earlier gotten rid of rivals in his rise to power. And of course, we know the outcome. They failed to restrain him. But that effort was there in the sort of self-consciousness of being the seasoned, skillful professionals dealing with this sort of crazy, reckless demagogue. That was very much the consciousness that his senior national security people had. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. So Hitler is clearly laid out, actually, in Mein Kampf, his plans for the Holocaust, that he feels Jews need to be exterminated and that other groups need to be exterminated, the mentally ill, gypsies, anyone who is other, that it is important to have only the, as he calls it, the Aryan race. And so he has already, in his mind, laid out this idea for the Holocaust, but he doesn't really embark on this until the early 1940s. Yes, and there's a really interesting and important moment. In January of 1939, Hitler gives a speech on the occasion of his sixth anniversary coming to power, and he delivers what he calls his prophecy. And his prophecy basically is that if international Jewry drives the world into another world war in an effort to benefit both communism in the Soviet Union and finance capital in the Western democracies— Then he says the result will not be the defeat of Germany and the triumph of Jewry. The result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. So what's important here is he's got an idea of a Jewish conspiracy which actually encapsulates both Soviet communism and Anglo-American capitalist democracy. He sees that as two sides of the same coin, which is a Jewish conspiracy directed at Germany. His understanding of what a world war would be is a war in which Germany is at war with both sides of that conspiracy, with the Anglo-American democracies and with the Soviet Union. So if we fast forward to August 1941, at this point, Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union is about a month and a half in progress. And in early August, Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt meet off the coast of Newfoundland in the famous Atlantic Conference, and they issue a document called the Atlantic Charter, which expressly calls for the abolition of Nazi tyranny and calls for a post-war world of democracy and international trade and freedom and so on. Hitler reads this as the sign that that world war is at hand. He takes this as basically an American declaration of war. Of course, this is months before Pearl Harbor still. But Hitler reads this as being the United States is now in the war. So the United States, alongside Great Britain, is in the war against Germany as he's fighting the Soviet Union. And so in Hitler's mind, 
the logical consequence is that the full-on war of the Jewish conspiracy against him is there, so he must strike out against Jews. And that annihilation of Jews that he had spoken about in 1939 is now at hand. And so it is, I think, not at all a coincidence that it's at that moment that we start to see the steps ramping up towards what's going to become the Holocaust, the systematic murder of European Jews in a very planned way carried out after late 1941 in the camps that we've all heard about, Auschwitz and Treblinka and so on. The real point of origin for that is this realization in August that the war that Hitler thinks is going to be a world war is coming. And really pushed forward by this paranoid delusion, which he's really had for a long time about the Jews, he does something that essentially you believe would never have happened without Hitler. That while there was great anti-Semitism, and certainly they would have removed the rights of the Jews or done things to essentially make them second-class citizens and limit them, that it really is Adolf Hitler the man who ultimately drives this Holocaust. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think this is something on which virtually all historians agree. Without Adolf Hitler, you would not have the Second World War, at least in the form that it came, and you would not have the Holocaust. It's very likely that any kind of right-wing, perhaps military government in Germany would have restricted the rights of Jews in some ways, but would not have proceeded to anything like full-on genocide. It's possible that a right-wing military government of some kind might have launched a war against Poland to reclaim territory that Germany had lost in World War I, but they would never have at least wanted to go to war against Britain or France, and certainly not the USA. So without Hitler, you don't have that. It's one of these remarkable things in history. He statistically so should have been killed in the First World War. Maybe statistically he should have died in infancy, as was so common, as happened to some of what would have been his siblings. This man survived again and again and again and again against all odds, and without him, these historical events of the 20th century would not have happened. He became increasingly a bigger and bigger risk taker, which actually being a risk taker can be a good quality of a leader. Many leaders who are wonderful leaders are risk takers, are narcissistic, meaning they have tremendous confidence in themselves and they're willing to take the risk, but for the furthering of the people that they're leading. In his case, it was for the furthering of himself. The problem became that ultimately, and we have to wonder why he made decisions later that were unreasonable risks that ultimately led to his downfall, the invasion of Russia, which seems in retrospect like a very, very poor decision. Why is that? So one hypothesis is that Hitler suffered from Parkinson's disease. Many diagnosticians have looked at films of Hitler, and it is evident that he had a pill-rolling tremor, that he had a shuffling gait, that he had what's called masked facies or a very blunt expression that had grown as he aged. He had kyphosis of the back. He had numerous symptoms that really define Parkinson's disease, and it's possible that he either developed early Parkinson's or that he developed what's called post-encephalopathic Parkinson's, which was due to viral illnesses that occurred in 1919 and 1920, but the mental effects essentially of Parkinson's are this increase in grandiosity, increase in paranoia, and a decrease in judgment and the ability to look at consequences. So whether this fueled some poorer decisions later or whether his narcissism and his belief in himself, this demagoguery, got the better of him or politically, whether he was being pushed in certain directions? Actually, I would argue that probably by, certainly in the last year of the war, maybe in the last two or three years of the war, he is making decisions where his grip on reality is clearly weak. The interesting thing, though, is that as a former trial lawyer, I think I would have a great deal of trouble making out uh, you know, an insanity defense for Hitler for any time prior to about 1942, because the interesting thing about his decisions up to that point, including the decision to invade the Soviet Union, is that although they didn't turn out well for him, clearly, there was a kind of rationality to his thought process, certainly an evil rationality, no question about that. If you accept his premise, you have to accept his premise. His premise is Germany must expand, must conquer territory in Eastern Europe, or won't be able to survive. If it doesn't do that, Germany will be overwhelmed eventually by Britain and particularly by the United States. So if you accept that premise, the way he's operating in 1940 and 41 is actually rational. The initial motive for the invasion of the Soviet Union, and this is something that Hitler basically decides in July of 1940, it's a very important moment because at that moment, he has defeated France in a campaign that is swift and has shocked the world. Britain is, as Hitler sees it, 
stubbornly and crazily refusing to accept reality and surrender. Winston Churchill has become prime minister and is spouting defiance from Britain. The Germans are dealing with the fact that they think they will probably have to invade Great Britain, but that's going to be a very difficult operation, and Hitler and his generals are a bit afraid of that, but they're pondering what to do. But that issue is entirely unresolved, and even with the British issue unresolved, and even with the famous air battle, Battle of Britain, not even having been fought yet, which the Germans will eventually lose, but they don't know that in July 1940, right then he starts to think about invading the Soviet Union. The reason is he thinks the British are hanging on only because they think the Soviets are out there as a potential ally. And if Hitler can knock out the Soviets... That will be a roundabout way of knocking out the British. So that is actually rational if you accept his premise. Also, the military advice he was getting, surprisingly, it wasn't just his delusion. All of his senior military commanders were confident that Germany could beat the Soviet Union and beat it quickly. They were not confident that they could beat Great Britain. They were terribly afraid of trying to land troops on Great Britain. But they thought the Soviet Union would be a quick campaign. Everybody shared that delusion. And, you know, we know what happened after that. Of course, the invasion, although it went initially very well for the Germans, it ends up being the thing that militarily really brings Hitler down. But his thought process to get there was actually, you know, not yet, I think, disturbed by any kind of clinical mental illness. Well, I think clinically we can say that the degree to which he believed that Jews were dangerous and would infest, as it were, the Aryan race is supported by no evidence, even by those around him. It's a paranoia that reaches a delusional level. And that really was a sort of a fixed delusion for much of the rest of his life, you know, for his later life. And he, he really maintained that. I think we could also say that in that late period, his narcissism and his cruelty, or let's say his sociopathy, he, he is known to say, for example, that if we can't invade Russia, if we can't have everything, if the German people won't get behind this, on this point, I am ice cold. They don't deserve to live. He was willing to jettison anybody, including his own people, if they would not follow him. So that degree of, let's say, a lack of empathy of any sort, you know, we would have to say is sociopathic. His lack of empathy actually is really interesting because the historian Timothy Snyder has a clever term for this. He writes that Hitler was not even really a nationalist. Uh, he was a zoological anarchist. And precisely because he thought, well, if the Germans aren't up to this sort of Darwinian struggle, then they deserve to all be exterminated. Fine. There's a sort of famous story of how during the war, his special train was parked at a siding alongside a train of wounded soldiers. And he just pulled the blinds down. He just didn't want to deal with there being wounded soldiers. A different kind of political operator would probably have gone into the train and shaken some hands and, you know, sort of been a politician. But that was not Hitler's thing. He had zero concern. He was apparently once handed a casualty report that was very high about Germans on the Eastern Front. And his officers expected him to be horrified. And Hitler shrugged and said, that's what the young men are there for. So empathy, even for people he would have regarded as his own, is utterly lacking. Completely absent. So we know that as they closed in on him and it was the end, um, he actually expressed often that he was not afraid of death. And if he couldn't accomplish this mission, then it was over for him. And he committed suicide, Eva Braun. He killed his dog beforehand, which was one of the few things he actually apparently loved. So we know how it ends. What I think is fascinating, and I want to take a moment for you to reflect on, is there are a lot of things about this time period building up to the war, otherism, populism, that are very reminiscent for many people of what is happening right now in the United States. And so there is great concern. We have a certain kind of leader right now. We have a certain kind of cultural concern about unemployment, about the economy, and what can we do about that that maybe takes precedence. So things that are frighteningly reminiscent. How do you see the similarities and differences between that time period in Germany and what we're experiencing today? The way I would put it is it's a bit of a good news, bad news situation. I'm not going to try and tell you that Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler. He's a different person in many, many, many ways. In my view, perhaps fortunately, he lacks Hitler's cunning and ruthlessness. He's actually much less politically talented than Hitler, which as far as I'm concerned is fine. There are, at a deeper level, though, some structural similarities that I think are really worrying. There are maybe about three. One is that we are living in a time 
where much like the 1920s and 1930s, there is a surge of nationalism around the world linked to a surge in support of authoritarian politics around the world, linked to a surge in demagogic politics around the world, and linked to a kind of anti-globalist rejection of international ties of all kind, whether those ties be ties of migration, ties of economic trade, ties of security alliances. Donald Trump stands against all of those things. He's for protectionism and trade. He doesn't like NATO. He doesn't like really any of our democratic allies. He certainly doesn't like uh, immigrants. In this sense, he's very typical of this kind of nationalist, anti-internationalist feeling, which was absolutely oxygen for the Nazis. This is really what the Nazis were about when they were a political movement in the sense that they needed to get elected. Their campaign was Germany first, make Germany great again, close Germany off from the world, make it autonomous, close it off from migrant flows, close it off from international finance, close it off from trade. That is a, a parallel that is worrying. The second one that worries me is the dynamic between Hitler and conventional German conservatives, uh, sort of mainstream conservatives in the early 1930s, really maps onto the relationship between Donald Trump and his followers and kind of mainstream Republicans. The dynamic is that in Germany back then, Mainstream conservatives looked at Hitler and they saw a guy who they didn't really like much or respect. They thought he was crude. They didn't like his demagoguery, all of this. But they thought, here's a guy who is clearly nationalist. He's clearly militarist. He's clearly anti-socialist. So from the standpoint of politicians who represent big business or the armed forces, this seems like a guy whose constituency could provide electoral support, electoral clout for an agenda of building up the armed forces and of scaling back the social welfare policies of democratic Weimar Republic, uh, scaling back other sort of state interventions in business life, which conservatives really dislike. So for a few years, there's a kind of dance between these conventional conservatives and Hitler, each trying to use the other, each confident they can use the other. And of course, the dance ends with the discovery that the mainstream conservatives have very much underestimated Hitler. He's the one who's more cunning and more ruthless. He's the one who succeeds in using them. I think we are in many ways replicating that right now with the relationship between mainstream Republicans and Donald Trump and his more core followers. And the last one I would say is deliberate, conscious exploitation of dishonesty for political purposes, what Hitler himself called the big lie. And Hitler sort of extolled the idea of using the big lie as an effective political tool. He had a highly talented propagandist, Joseph Goebbels, working for him, who was very skillful at manipulating lies for political gain. This is obviously and certainly something that we are seeing today. I understand that Donald Trump has clocked in at somewhere over 10,000 lies since taking the oath of office. And he has a media environment to some extent which channels this for him and perpetuates it, as unfortunately do many of the people of his party in Congress. And so we are living in a time where the very possibility of truth, of course, Ms. Conway famously said there are alternative facts apparently considering this to be a legitimate argument. So we're living in a time where the respect for truth is at a low in some corners of our political environment, again, in much the same way that Hitler and the Nazis did this. I guess on the flip side of this, the thing that I would say makes us a bit different from then, perhaps two main points. One is I think there is a profound individualism in American culture, which makes us very hard to regiment. That is not a bad cultural defense against the return of something like the fascism of the uh, early and mid-20th century. And the other is the federal system. It's striking that one of the first things the Nazis did when they got power, Germany's also then and now a federal state, one of the first things they did is make sure they could knock out the state governments and centralize power in Berlin. At least as of right now, we still have a working federal system and we have state governments that often are of a different political complexion than the national administration, means that that is a check and balance, even if other checks and balances seem to be failing in Washington at the moment. That is an effective one, and we've seen it in many ways, how some state governments in various ways are able to push back against some of what the federal government is doing. Hopefully supported by the fact that we have been a democracy for a long, long time. Absolutely. And Nazi Germany had prior to that only been a democracy for 15 years. It had been a full-on democracy for 15 years. It had been a somewhat partial democracy for a few decades before that. Pre-World War I, Germany was not entirely not a democracy. It had democratic elements. But yes, compared to the United States, the roots of democratic culture were much more shallow than they are for us today. A little frightening is the ending, but thank you so much, Ben. That wraps things up for this episode. A huge thanks to Dr. Benjamin Carter Head. For more on the life of Adolf Hitler, check out his book, The Death of Democracy, 
Hitler's rise to power and the downfall of the Weimar Republic. Also, if you're interested in more information about the people we discuss in this series, you can check out my book, The Power of Different. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Gail Salt or at PersonologyMD to follow along with all the latest news about the show. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. Editing, music, and mixing by Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day smart metabolic burn by brain md can kickstart your metabolism fight stubborn body fat especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey right now save over 30 percent on smart metabolic burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain md these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration our products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.